Good morning again to you, uh, Sunset. My name is Eugene. As, as it was mentioned, it's a really big blessing to be here. Uh, I, I have a couple of friends here that I grew up with in college, so thankful to be here with uh, familiar faces. Uh, just a side note too, I'm really thankful that you guys gave uh, Joey sabbatical. I think churches that do that, it's just a healthy practice. I know it's probably a little worrisome to have your lead pastor gone, but I'm glad that he's getting some rest. And I'll let my church know that uh, you guys are doing this so that they could do this at my church. Um, you know, as, as we just read, uh, this is a passage of King David. And if you grew up in the church, you're probably very familiar with this story. But if not, I want to take a look at it today as a warning and as a, a word of hope for both all of us here. Um, that King David is a story of both of what we can become and how God can redeem our failures. But in the midst of that, it, it should strike you, why is King David's greatest failure the climax of his story, of his narrative? Um, because even in today's times, that's a very countercultural thing to do. Bill Clinton has an autobiography called My Life, and obviously it's an autobiography, so a little bit of a spin and, and branding of his own. But the chapter on Monica Lewinsky is very short, right? And he's like, oh, it wasn't me. It was like, it was all her. Uh, you know, former President Donald Trump paid money to ensure that his moral failures would not become public. And yet in the Bible, what we have is a very different practice. The author obviously could have highlighted something else. And I'm sure there are so many other failures in King David's life that wasn't brought to our attention. But why is it that his greatest failure, the murder of his best friend, the adultery of someone that was not his, why is it highlighted? Mike Hosper, uh, who, who's a great Christian thinker, puts it this way, and it's always helped me interpret the Bible well. Just as we're tempted to flatten Noah, Moses, or David into two-dimensional stories of heroes, we want to tell simple stories about ourselves. And it's easier to grasp that we're either sinners or saints than it is to acknowledge that we're a mix of both. What King David is showing us is both the potential of the extent of our failures and the unlimited potential of God's redemption in the midst of our failures that will always happen over and over again. So how can we take a look today? Well, first I want to do this. The part one of King David's story here, it's a warning to us that all of us can fall and fall heavily in our lives. Um, just to give a quick recap, because I know uh, I didn't want to read all of Second Samuel uh, chapter 11. But if you look at the story, King David, right in the beginning, it should strike you as different because the, the author says, in the time the kings go out to battle, King David does not go out to battle. He stays back. And as we just read, he sees Bathsheba, Bathsheba bathing on the roof and says, oh, I want that. And it, it, we didn't read the whole saga, but what happens is David sends out, who is that? Well, and they tell them, this is someone that is your uh, best friend's daughter and your best friend's wife. And he says, oh, it's, it's all good. He takes her. They commit adultery and then she gets pregnant. And what he does is he tries to cover up that love child. He brings Uriah back, and we didn't read this, but he brings Uriah back from battle, the, the husband of Bathsheba, and tries to coax him to get him to go to home with Bathsheba so that it could look like, oh, that's your child. But Uriah is an honorable man. He says he doesn't. And even though David tries and tries and tries, he does not do that. And ultimately what he does is he sends Uriah out to battle 
so that he would die by himself. That happens, Nathan comes, and then we get this whole story. Now, for us, what, what is the point of all that? You have to understand this. Uh, King David is, is a special person in the Old Testament. It's actually, King David's life is the longest portion of any person in the Bible depicted. So you, you have to realize that King David represents the best of us. Up to this point, all of Israel had always had leaders that came and fell, but King David was the one where they realized, like, this could be the Messiah that we have been awaiting. And what King David is showing us is this. If the best of us can fall, any of us can fall. So if that's true, then what are the warnings that we can take from King David? Because you have to realize King David is warning any of us can fall. For example, uh, in, in the Silicon Valley, uh, in San Jose, I don't know if you read this, but recently the San Jose Union, uh, the police department union head, for 10 years, she's been supplying the opioid pandemic in all of the nation. So she's in jail. And we're like, everyone, in church, in our Slack, it was the, everyone was me- messaging about that. How could this person do that? That's crazy. But me and my uh, other pastor, Pastor Jimmy, want to say that could be any of us. That could be any of us. And King David is a warning that it could be any of us. So what are the warnings that we can take? Well, I want to kind of peel back the, the warnings that we see. The first warning is this. The road to any significant moral failure is paved by thousands of pebbles. The road to any significant moral failure is paved by thousands of pebbles. Look, if you take a look at any um, disaster, I mean, let's, not, let's not even focus on a personal moral failure, but any sort of disaster. Uh, for me, I, I, I love like seeing things fall apart. It's, it's a weird thing. I, I'm a broken person, okay? But Silicon Valley Bank, um, FTX, uh, all those stories fascinate me. Because the story to get to, how could, for example, SVB, a Silicon Valley bank, if you guys don't know this, a bank that supplied billions of dollars to the tech industry fall overnight? That doesn't just happen, right? And on a personal side, for adultery, you don't just wake up like, oh my gosh, who's in the bed with me? What did I just do? It doesn't happen overnight, right? A great show that shows this on a practical level is a show called Chernobyl. It's on HBO Max. It's a bit graphic because it shows the reality of what happened. But Chernobyl, what happened, if you don't know the story, in Chir- uh, the, the city of Chernobyl in, in Soviet Union times, there was a nuclear reactor that exploded. And it imploded and all this radiation was leaking. And the whole show is trying to get to you. That doesn't just happen. A scientist just doesn't go, oh, I pressed the wrong button and the reactor blew up. What the show showed was there was these thousands of small decisions that the Soviet Union made that made possible for this, the reactors to fail by cutting costs, by using cheaper materials, by having uh, propaganda saying we're the best country in the world. All those small decisions led to this huge disaster. In the same way, that should be a warning for ourselves. Any massive failure does not happen overnight, but rather it's thousands of small, mundane, to us insignificant decisions that we make on a daily basis that always lead you to become either a person made out of righteousness or a person made out of sin and failure. If you look at King David's life, it shouldn't have surprised you that he commits the adultery in chapter 11 because all throughout his reign, he takes wives over and over and over again. And oftentimes scholars are debating, is that something that God is condoning? Obviously not. In, in Deuteronomy 17, 17, God's 
explicitly tells his leaders he must not take many wives or his heart will be led astray. David took wife after wife. And in all those instances, it's quote unquote was culturally justifiable. Oh, they don't have a husband. She can become my wife. Oh, we just conquered this nation and, and she's a widow. She can become my wife. And these small decisions over and over and over again that were acceptable in the time led him to commit the greatest failure of his life, to kill his best friend, to cover up the adultery with Bathsheba. We all do this. Every decision that you make, I'm, I'm talking about mundane decisions. I always tell my church this, God cares more how you deal with your Starbucks barista on a busy day more than your five, 10 year career plan. God cares more how you drive on the road, and this is more of a preaching to myself, than whatever you have planned in the future because those small decisions form you and shape you into the person you become in five, 10, 15 years. Right? To even give a very, very personal application, I have a son named Eli. Uh, he, he's gonna turn five in May. And he's, he's a wild, wild child. Um, uh, you know, I, I, I always told myself, like, I'm not going to parent like my parents, you know? But now that I'm a parent, I'm like, oh, they weren't mean because they were mean. They were mean because I was horrible as a child because I see it in my son, right? And I always, I always told myself, I'm not going to lose my temper with my son, especially my son. I have a son and daughter, but I know I can go really hard on my son, but I always do. I lose my temper. I raise my voice. Why is that? You know, a couple of weeks ago, I remember there was a moment where he did something. I don't even remember what he did, but it's very insignificant, but I lost my temper. What caused me to fail at that moment? When I was yelling at my son and raising my voice, I wasn't yelling at him. I was yelling at the unresolved tension between me and my wife that we just ignored. I was yelling at him because there was a tens of emails, 50 emails that I chose to be apathetic about and are starting to build up. I yelled at him because... Andrew Wiggins missed a wide open quarter three, right? And I got too emotionally invested in that decision, right? All those small insignificant decisions led me to a failure of, you know, losing my temper at my son. We all know this. What King David is showing us is this. Small, insignificant decisions form you. And whether you like it or not, they lead you into becoming a man or a woman of righteousness or a man or woman of failure in a couple of years. So the, a, a road, the road to moral failure is paved by thousands of pebbles. But the second layer is this. What King David shows us on top of that is that when we hide the consequences of our actions, we fall into a deeper and deeper hole of failure. You have to realize this. The failure of King David in this story is not one significant event. If you look at the story, it's not one thing that happened. But what David does is he keeps trying to cover up things over and over and over again that lead him into a mess out of control, the need to damage control. What King David is showing us is this. When you place your own brand, your own appearance over your own character, it's a road to utter destruction. When you place the brand or appearance of yourself over your own character, it's the road to destruction. Because King David, what he could have done is when he committed adultery with Bathsheba and Bathsheba gets pregnant, he could have easily said, that was me. That was me who got this woman pregnant and I repent. He could have easily done that. But no, he wanted to 
hide the consequences of his actions. And what does he do? He thinks he can keep getting away with it. He says, oh, you know what? I have a plan, right? And like, we all think the Game of Thrones is crazy. And you know, if you watch or don't watch this, that's whatever. But the Bible is crazier because what does King David do? In his mind, he's like, you know what? I can bring Uriah back and coax him into sleeping with his wife so that they think it's his child. He's trying to contain the consequences of his actions to protect his reputation as king. And it leads him to kill his best friend. Whenever you place your brand or appearance over your character, it's a road to destruction. You know, in, in the show Chernobyl, as, we, as I just mentioned, at the end, there's a trial where the top scientists come and explain, this is what happened. This is what caused us to be here. And, and there's, a, there's, a, there's a line that has always stuck with me that I think is biblical truth. At the end, what basically is happening is a scientist comes before the trial and says, the reason that this happened is because we placed the brand of the Soviet Union over the character of our nuclear plants. And this is what he writes. I know that sounds really nerdy, but this is what he says. When the truth offends, we lie and lie until we can never remember it is still there. But... The truth is still there. Every lie we tell incurs a debt to the truth. Sooner or later, that debt is paid. Sooner or later, that debt is paid. Whatever lie you're, you're telling, I don't know what it could be, big or small, we tell it because we think we can get away with it. But we can't. The truth always comes out. Sin in darkness will always be exposed with time, whether here or in, or in eternity. And Ed, one quick side note too. Why is it that we have to live with the consequences of our actions? Because if God is all-powerful, right? And, and, and if King David, you know, actually repented right when he committed adultery with Bathsheba, why couldn't God say, you know what? The baby has disappeared. Nothing happened. He could have, he's God. And the same way, you can think about this. Why does God let us live with the consequences of our actions? Because some of the consequences that we commit can never go away. They'll never go away. Why is that? Why does it happen? The consequences of our sins, especially, are not taken away by God, not out of spite, but for our own good. You have to remember this. The consequences of your sins, they do not define who you are. They do not define who you are, but they do warn you of what you can become. The consequences of your sins, whatever they are, I don't want to get into examples because I know that can be touchy, but whatever they are, they don't define you. I hope you know that. I hope you, we'll see in a little bit, but King David is not defined by this, but he cannot get rid of the consequences. Why does God allow that to happen? Because they warn David, this is who you can become if you're not keeping yourself in check. So the road to failure, it's paved by thousands of pebbles. When we try and hide our consequences, the worse and worse it gets. But lastly, the last layer is this, and I think this is the most applicable for us. What David shows us as we, he paves these thousands of small decisions, as he tries to hide the consequences is this, power will always blind the heart. Our addiction and lust and our grasp for power in whatever way, I'm not even talking, I know for King David, the, the whole nation of Israel is at hand, but this is the thing, power is always in play in your life. Maybe it's your family, maybe it's your wife and husband dynamic, maybe it's your kids, maybe it's your work, maybe it's your friends. Power is always in play. 
And what King David is showing us is this. If you place power over everything, it will blind you to the point of failure. A key verb throughout this passage in the Hebrew is the verb sent. And, and what the verb sent is saying is it's a place of authority. It's someone of authority sending someone on the basis of their authority. And in the beginning of the story, the author is smart. What he says is this. King David sends his armies to battle in the time the kings go out to battle. But yet he does not go out to battle. He stays back. What he's doing is this. He's using his power for his own benefit. When we become addicted to power and status, it opens the door for sins and failure. Because this is the thing. Power always blinds you. In the story of Bathsheba, David sees Bathsheba, and in his power, he says this, he sends messengers after Bathsheba. So in verse 3, David sent, uh, it's a verb of power, and inquired about the woman. And the messenger comes back, and this is what the messenger tells David, like, oh, hey, you want to know who that naked woman on the roof is? You know, no questions, but this is who it is. Is not this Bathsheba the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? If you don't know the past, if you don't know the context, Eliam was one of the, the mighty men that protected David when Saul was trying to kill him. And so was Uriah. So he gets the message. Like, just think about this, all right? Like, you're like, all right, you know what? Uh, you know, maybe you're on Tinder and you're married. I'm just, this is hypothetical, okay? Maybe you're on Tinder and you're married and you find someone, you're connecting. And then you realize it's your best friend's daughter and also your other friend's wife. That should be huge warning signs. Like, you got to wake up. But David ignores all of that. Why? Because power blinds the heart. When you lust over power, it blinds over the heart. And this is, what, this is the thing. When you increase in your grasp for power, what you increase is not in self-righteousness, but self-pity. Oh, I, I deserve this. Every adulterous scandal always begins with this word. Oh, you know what? I think I deserve this. It's been tough at home, husband or wife. It's been tough at home dealing with the kids, dealing with my unloving husband, unloving wife. I need this. I deserve this. Power always turns into self-pity. And we do this. I'm not even talking about sexual scandals, but power always does this. Gossip. What, what is gossip? It's, there's a power dynamic that that person is not there, that you can talk behind their back. And what you're doing is you're blinded to the fact that they're not just a person in ideal, but they're a person in reality. That the words you say behind their back are hurting them, whether you know it or not. That hatred, hatred is a power dynamic. Hatred is usually, I'm powerful and you wrong me. And you become blind to the humanity in that person. You see this, our lust for power, it ultimately blinds us, not just from the people that we commit sins against and that we fall into, but our need for God. It's the first time in King David's story throughout all the chapters that God is not present from David's lips. King David is the man after God's own heart. He's the only person in Scripture that God says, this is a man after my own heart. And yet in the time of failure, what happens? It's the one time the Lord is never uttered from David's lips. You have to realize King David is a story of a warning of this is how we can fall. But at the same time, time as it's a warning of how we can fall king david is also a story of hope and redemption for those who have fallen 
you know, as I just talked about the warnings of, of how we can fall, the, the problem is this, although we can be warned, we will all fall. That is what it means to be human. And King David could have been a story of, well, if you fall, that just sucks for you. But it's not. King David's story of, this is what can happen if we're not careful, but also when those things do happen, because we're human, this is what God will do with us. You see, what King David shows us is that he repents. At the end of the story in chapter 12, as Nathan comes and confronts him, King David says, I am that man in the story. I am the one that committed the sins. Amidst all the things he has done, he finally repents. And in that repentance is hope and redemption for his story and for all of us. So this is the thing. Just as we described what, we can, what can happen if we fall, King David also shows us this. When we repent, these are the things that happen. That we have joy with God. Now, how does this happen for us? Let me get more practical. Just as there are three layers to how we can fall, there are three layers of repentance. The first is a little bit shorter, but this, we have to seek communal repentance. We have to seek communal repentance. You, you never know you're sinning when you're in sin. David felt like a lover. David felt like a general in these times. But amidst that, what, what did it take for David to wake up? It was, a, it was a voice of someone from the outside. The prophet Nathan comes in and tells him a story. What's the whole point of that? God knew that David needed an outside voice. Because if you look in chapter 12, what did I just say? There's a key verb throughout this whole passage, the idea of sent, the authority, that, that authority being used. In chapter 12, verse 1, this is how it begins. And the Lord sent Nathan to David. God uses his own sovereign power to save David from his own sin and failure. Now, what does Nathan show us? We need radical friendships and community that speak truth to us. We all need Nathans in our lives. Do you have one? Because this is the thing, to have a Nathan in your life, it's a two-way street. And, and, and quick side note, if there are people that, that just want to be Nathans, like you can cast them out. You know what I'm talking about? Like There are people that just come into your life, they're like, let me just tell you what's wrong with you. That, that's not someone being sent from God, okay? That, that might be Satan. You never know. But what Proverbs tells us is this, Proverbs 27, 5 to 6, faithful are the wounds of a friend, profuse are the kisses of an enemy. We need friends like Nathan who will hurt us for our own good. Because this is the thing, when we're in sin, and, and, and let me say this, you know, in the church setting, we all know who's in sin, right? Usually, like, and, and it's kind of difficult to tell them that. But what God is showing us is we need to be open and humble enough to invite Nathans into our life. And this is the thing, if you're reading the story like, you know, I'm called to be Nathan, you got to calm down a little bit, right? But also see how Nathan confronts David. Nathan tells a story. Nathan could have easily came and be like, yo, David, you slept with your best friend's wife. God is pissed at you. He doesn't do that. He tells a random story. And, and the, you know, and commentators are like, what, what is the meaning of this story? Who is the sheep? Who is the traveler? You know, in my eyes, you know why Dave, Nathan said that story? One, he didn't want to die because, you know, it's the king, right? So he needed to be a little creative. Like, hey, I have a story for you, right? Hopefully it kind of triggers your guilt. But second, I also think this, Nathan does that because he understands to confront sin in a very shame and honor culture. And, you know, where I'm from, I'm from a very Asian American context. It's hard to do that. So he gets creative about it. 
He doesn't just come and say, hey, let me tell you how you messed up. No, he, he gets very, let me tell you as a friend, let me be creative, let me be careful in how I bring this about. We need those type of people in our lives that are careful, that carefully hurt us for our own good so that we can learn to repent. But as Nathan comes, well, what does David do? He repents. He says, I am that man. And this is a beautiful thing about this story. Uh, King David wrote a lot of the Psalms. And in Psalm 51, it's entitled, The Repentance of David After He Sleeps with Bathsheba. And it's a beautiful Psalm. And I wish I had enough time to look at that too. But there's one verse that really sticks out to me in that uh, Psalm. It's, it's verse four. And I believe it'll be up on the screen. This is what King David writes and tells us. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, Lord, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. What is David showing us? Just as we need community to repent, what David shows us is after we're aware of our sin, David shows us what holistic repentance looks like. Holistic repentance. And what I mean by that is this, David repents both in heart and in mind. In heart and in mind. This is the thing. Many of us, if you're like me, we only repent with one or the other. So I'm, I'm married, and if you're married, you might know this. There are times where my wife will come to me like, you hurt me. You have grieved me, right? You are the man in the story. That's what she'll say, right? And in my heart, I'm like, I'm grieved. Like, oh, I can see that you're hurting, and my heart grieves for you, wife. But my mind is like, but that, that doesn't make sense, right? That doesn't make sense. Like, my heart is grieved, like, oh, man. But logically, I'm like, well, but that doesn't make sense, okay? So I'll go to my friends. I'll be like, hey, does, does that make sense? I'll be like, no, that doesn't make sense, right? You're in the right. So I'll go back and be like, you know, I'm sorry, but let me apologize with context, right? Because that doesn't make sense, but I'm sorry, right? That's not true repentance. And, and this is the thing. I, I, that's usually me, but others, you flip it. You know you did wrong. You know you did wrong to someone, or maybe to God. You know logically, oh, I messed up, but in your heart, you're like, oh, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. David chooses to do neither. What he chooses to do is he's, it's a holistic repentance. I have sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. What does that show us? First is this, he, he repents with his mind. Look, this is the thing. It, it, it's very easy to, to repent of uh, acceptable sins. Um, you know, because I'm here, I can share some stuff about my church. When I'm at my church, uh, and I'm like, yo, how you doing, man? Like, you know, is there anything, you know, and there's community group time and I visit. And if, especially if I'm there visiting as a pastor, I understand it's a weird dynamic. And it's always like the, <laughs> the sins I hear repented are such like, like, come on, man. Right. It's like, it's like, oh, you know, I repent of working too hard. Right. It's like, what? What? Like, it's like, oh, I, I repent of like, you know, like, man, I'm, I've been serving a lot and I, I got to take a break for myself. You know, I'm just like, come on. And this is the thing. We all do that. We all do. It's so easy to repent of acceptable sins. But David doesn't do that. David, with his mind, says, I have done what is evil, not in my sight, not in the culture's sight, but your sight. I, it doesn't matter what the culture tells me. It doesn't matter what my mind tells me. What matters is, are my actions in life consistent with the words that you have given me? He repents with his, with his mind saying, even though logically, Lord, it doesn't make sense in my mind, but you are the logic that I need when I sin. He repents with his mind. He says, 
I, rep I I've done it was evil in your sight. And this is the challenge for us. Are we weighing our life in the full scope, not of the world, not of your culture, not even of your own conscience, but of scripture and of God? Because this is the thing. Some of us, if you're like me, you have very weak, weak, weak consciences, right? My wife has a very strong conscience. Like she'd be like, oh my gosh, like I didn't signal when I turned. Like that's, oh man, I'm like, oh yeah, that's pretty bad, right? Um, I have a very weak conscience. I know that. So I know, especially, I need to repent, not with what I think is wrong, but what the scripture tells me is wrong. David repents with his mind, but also at the same time, holistically, he repents with his heart. Well, what I mean by that is this. David does not try and justify his sins. Man, if you read the autobiography of Bill Clinton, he tries to justify what happened so hard. He's like, oh, you know, Monica, she was just tempting me and all that stuff. King David doesn't do that. He could have. He does not do that. He could have said, Lord, I repent. Although Bathsheba was naked, I still repent. You know, he doesn't say that. He just says, I have committed sin. It doesn't matter the context. It doesn't matter what happened. No ifs, no ands, no buts. I take full responsibility of my sin. David repents fully with his mind and fully with his heart. There are no stipulations to his repentance. Do you know how many stipulations I add when I repent towards my wife? You know, say, like, oh, you know, you can do the dishes. Like, oh, I'm sorry, but you didn't do it last week either, right? That, that's not true repentance. That's not with my full heart. King David knows that. He takes full responsibility over our sins, over his sins. No ifs, no ands, no buts. And this is the thing. When you add stipulations, it's just a pathway to habitual sins that you cover up. We have to learn to repent holistically with heart and mind. So look, we have to repent in community, holistically. But lastly, and this is the most core thing, what David shows us is this. He repents not towards the consequences of his sins, but towards God and God alone. David does not repent about the consequences of his sins, but to God and to God alone. Again, when you go back to that psalm, something should stick out with you. In verse 4, David says this, Against you, you only have I sinned. And you're like, wait, 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 wait a second. Like, you, you, well, first off, you killed someone, so you should apologize to, to him, David, right? You slept with someone and had that kid that was born out of that adultery also die because God allows that child to perish. You, you commit a sins to a lot of people, David. And it almost seems like, dude, that's kind of outlandish. Like you're blaming all these things and you're not even thinking about Bathsheba, about Uriah, about the people of Israel. And, and look, this is the thing. David does have guilt towards all these people. But the reason David repents before God and God only is this, because he realizes, he could have said, oh, you know, I repent before Uriah, I repent over Bathsheba. And what that's doing is repenting over the consequences of the sins. But what David understands is this, every sin that we commit, every sin, ultimately is adultery with God. Every sin that we commit, whether it be actual adultery, whether it be financial, whether it be hatred, whether it be gossip, whatever it may be, every sin that you commit ultimately is adultery with God. Because this is the thing. What David is realizing is before I committed adultery with Bathsheba, Lord, I committed adultery with you. Because if I have you as my core, if I have you as what centers me, any sin will always reflect off of me. Why did David need power? God had given him all the power he needed in his life. 
Why did David need Bathsheba? He got God had given him everything. Why did God need to? Or why did David need to kill Uriah? Because he had run away from God. And what David realizes is, I I don't need to repent just about the consequences of my sins, Lord. But I need to repent about the ultimate sin that I left you at one point in my life. This is the thing. Many of us, if you're like me, we're more worried about the consequences of our sins than the actual sin itself. But look, if you repent only of the consequence of your sin, that's just tactical self-pity. That's, that's just being a really smart person and trying to get away with it again. If you just beat yourself up over the consequences of your sins, you will not change. Because this is the thing. Why are we so scared of the consequences of our sins? Because there's this deep fear that if people find out that I'm actually this person and these consequences have not left me, that I will be unwanted, unacceptable, and unlovable. But David doesn't do that. He says, you know what, Lord? These consequences, they might get out. The people of Israel, they might lose faith in me. And then slowly they do. They do if the story goes on, if you read. But God, David says that that does not matter. David's repenting of the truest sin from running away from an eternally loving and giving father. What David uses to finally repent, not of the consequences, but to God himself, is by returning to God's love, by seeing God's love for him throughout his own life. God is the one that had saved him from King Saul. God is the one that had delivered, you know, all these enemies before David, even though he didn't have enough men. God's love has always been unending in David's life. And in the moment of failure, David realizes that and returns to him. And the question lastly then for us is this, how can we access this love today? It's through the king that comes from the line of David. It's from the king who comes from the line of David. And this is the last thing I want to leave us with. From the line of David, we have a king of redemption, the true king that covers up and, and that, that, that makes up for all of David's sins and our sins. You know, what's crazy is this. David and Bathsheba have a second son by the name of Solomon. And in that crazy affair where a best friend is killed, comes the line of who? Jesus. Jesus comes from the line of King David and the adultery of Bathsheba. That should shock you because that also shows us the lineage of Jesus is showing us this is where I'm coming from because this is what I'm trying to save you from. And you hear that and you're like, think about this. David just killed his best friend and then God says, oh, you're forgiven. That should be like, whoa, that's, that's kind of, it's kind of crazy, especially in today's climate. In today's climate, you know, with cancel culture, where we're so lustful for judgment. And, and some of it may be true, but because we're so quick to judge, there's no chance for forgiveness in our culture. Elizabeth Brunig, who's a writer, writes this, and I found this to be powerful. There's just something unsustainable about in an environment that demands constant atonement, but actively disdains the very idea of forgiveness. You know, we live in a culture where it's so hard to forgive. Because if King David was alive now, he'd be canceled. It'd be done. It doesn't matter how much he repented. But yet what the scriptures tells us is King David is forgiven. And, and I want to be clear. This is, not a, this is not some sort of statement that whatever you, whatever you do, it can be okay if you just say, I'm sorry. That's not the point. But what King David is showing is this. Even the most craziest sins we can be forgiven from. It was in numerous times of sovereign power and love in David's life from God that allows him to repent and allows him to be forgiven. Because in our case, well, we're not King David, right? We don't have these crazy things, but we do. 
When you look to the cross, we have, the, we have even more love than King David ever experienced. First John 4, 9 to 10, this is what John writes. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us. That God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. The propitiation, what it means is he had to die for our sake. In Christ's death, we have the love that covers us all. Cancel culture, it's right. All sins deserve to be canceled. All sinners deserve to be canceled. And that's what happened on the cross. Jesus' life was completely canceled. And yet, in his resurrection, we are covered by his blood. What does that mean for us? It's not guilt that can change the heart. It's love and security in, in the cross. I'll close with this. The, the love of Christ, when you look at it intensely, it can fill any emptiness that, cause, that causes our sins and failures. At the same time, and it can also free us from the consequences that we're living with. It can give us a new hope that when we repent holistically and before God, not just the consequences, what Christ tells us is you are forgiven. It does not matter what you have done. Look at King David's life. If you truly repent with heart and mind and to God alone, you will be forgiven by the blood of Christ. Let us come in repentance to him to freely receive this healing grace. Let's pray. Uh, Lord, we're so, I'm so thankful to be here with Sunset this morning. And, and as we looked on a very heavy story uh, of King David, as we looked at his life and his failure and also his redemption, I hope we can take so many things from his life that we can take warnings of what we can become and usually do fall into. And at the same time, just as we fall, and just as King David fell, allow us to see the redemption that is awaiting for us at the other side of repentance. That we, when we come to the cross with our heart and mind, that we come fully repenting in community in this church, that we can receive redemption, we can receive love from your son. Um, be with us in, in all of our steps, whatever we take, so that we can live out in this grace. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.